Welcome to the Winged Wheel Podcast. Here to talk all things hockey are your hosts, Brad Crisco, Ryan Hanna, and Evan Lobsinger. Evan, we got juked hard by Brad today. Did I just surprise you by opening the podcast? <laughs> uh, I'm trying to <laughs> trying to wonder. I'm wondering what we got juked hard about. Well, when we were trying to make plans for our recording this week and everything fell into place so beautifully and we had those five minutes where it was like, oh, two conflicting uh, scheduling things for me and you and Brad swoops in to save the day. And then Brad just hit us with a, oh, wait, never mind. I absolutely can't do that day at all. <laughs> oh, you said Tuesday? No, no, no. Yeah, sorry. Yeah, unfortunately, that is my busiest day of the week. <laughs> I was thinking of the other Tuesday. Yeah, the second. Have they heard about second Tuesday? Uh, no. Oh, man. Well, Brad, uh, you pulled a fast one. You did summarily ruin my afternoon, so thank you for that. You made my already busy tomorrow way busier, so we're even. Yeah, fair enough. (laughs) Welcome to the Winged Wheel Podcast, folks. Here to talk to you about all things Detroit Red Wings hockey, the world of the NHL, the NHL draft, and lots more. I am one of your hosts, Ryan Hanna. I'm Brad Crisco. And I'm Evan. On this episode of the Winged Wheel Podcast, there's uh, a few different things going on. First off, we're going to open with yet another uh, prospect profile, a highly skilled player who comes with some kind of skating deficiencies that makes him an interesting prospect all over the board in terms of rankings. We'll talk about the way the draft uh, might play out. Uh, We'll step in and see how the Stanley Cup final is going with Vegas taking a 3-1 lead over the Florida Panthers. The DeBrinket conversation that we had last episode became more poignant uh, with some new reporting coming out uh, about what teams are on his uh, trade list. And then uh, NHL news galore, Severson sign and trade, uh, a rumored Darlene extension, uh, interest in Scott Lawton, et cetera, et cetera. So all that and lots more uh, before we jump into overtime. Before that, I do want to let you know that the Winged Wheel podcast is almost entirely supported by our Patreon supporters. Patreon.com slash Winged Wheel podcast if you want to support the show. Uh, go above and beyond. Our, our patrons are the heartbeat of the show. Uh, what they allow us to do is uh, expand and constantly improve our content, not only just with the Winged Wheel podcast, but also with our expanded Winged Wheel uh, podcast content network, whatever you want to call it. Uh, Expected by Whom is a new show that we launched, hosted by Sean Shapiro and Prashanth Iyer. Uh, as well, we uh, really, really work hard to support the Jamie Daniels Foundation in their fight against substance use disorder. So the patrons allow us to run different kinds of initiatives and fundraisers to do so, including Winged Wheel Podcast Nights at the LCA, which are partnered events between us and the Detroit Red Wings, uh, where everyone gets together, watches a game, and we host a live podcast from the arena. All of that and lo- lots more. Uh, you get a ton of perks. You'll hear about them later right before overtime, but patreon.com slash Podcast if you want to go the extra mile and support the show. All right, Brad, do your best to hold an innu- innuendo until the uh, Patreon-exclusive bonus episode, but today's prospect profile is none other than uh, highly skilled forward Matthew Wood, uh, who's an interesting prospect. I've seen some people say that the you know big nearly 6'4 winger is worth a potential top 10 to 12 pick, and some people are saying you wouldn't even consider it until a hypothetical you know pick 17 where Detroit's second first round pick is at as of right now. So uh, Matthew Wood is a, I don't want to say polarizing prospect, but you have to weigh the pros and cons with him. So who is he as a prospect? Where does he land on your board? Man, he he might be the prospect I'm having the toughest time ranking. Not because he's an incredibly difficult to figure out, but just the projection 
on him could vary wildly. I think Matthew Wood's floor is still pretty high just because of, you know, the size and the skill um, and, and the vision. So, you know, you put those three things together. It, it's pretty hard to not make the NHL at that point, despite his lack of foot speed. Um, for me, I think he could land anywhere between Anthony Mantha and Tage Thompson. And it's oh, a hell of a range. That, hence the problem in, in ranking Matthew Wood. Uh, I, I, you know, I don't think he's going to be like, his floor is going to be like a Michael Rasmussen where some of the offensive tools just don't translate. Cause he just played NCAA as a true 17 year old. Uh, he's not a late birthday for this draft, which is 99% of, um, the draft eligible players who played in the NCAA. No, he went a year early uh, led his team in scoring, was I think just a hair shy of a point per game, which is not nothing to do that as a set. That's impressive when a draft eligible does it in the NCAA. He did it as a 17-year-old in the NCAA, the youngest player in the NCAA. So I, like I said, I think his floor is is reasonably high, which I will call Anthony Mantha. Um, as Mantha's career has played out lately, you can do with that information what you will. <laughs> Uh, For all of you typing up angry comments, you're right. We know. Yeah, we know. Um, but with his vision, his shot in terms of accuracy and power and, you know, how quickly he can get off his release and his hands, there is a reality where this guy turns into a Tage Thompson type. And where you believe that is going to translate up levels is where you should rank him accordingly. I think think it's rather significant what he did in the NCAA this year at his age. So I don't think he's going to be Tage Thompson, but let's put it this way. In my head, he's closer to Tage than he is to Mantha. Um, if the Red Wings want him, 17's not going to be an option. I I would strongly uh, suggest if they want him, they're probably going to have to take him at nine. Um, Interesting. I think he's going to go in the 10 to 15 range personally. If he does slip to 17, that almost feels like a no-brainer unless someone else, you know, falls. Because the only... Wood possesses something the Red Wings very obviously need, which is a gifted offensive player, specifically a guy who can shoot. All the conversations we've had about Debrinkit and the Red Wings not being able to score goals, Matthew Wood would be a huge boost to that. But the one problem with the Red Wings, uh, not the one, but one of the problems with the Red Wings... This team is slow as hell, and Matthew Wood sure as hell doesn't help that. <laughs> no. Um, that's not his game, and that's fine. And, you know, if you were a faster team in the NHL, you probably don't blink picking Matthew Wood, but Detroit might it might give him some pause because eventually someone has to do some skating on this team that isn't Dylan Larkin, um, and Matthew Wood will never be that guy. So I, I still think if he gets to 17, that, that feels like a no-brainer pick just because the ceiling is so high the potential is is dramatic but um you got to be pretty confident and you can develop him and with prospects of his size and his skill generally you have to be patient as well yeah he's to me this is a big big upside player that scale you put forward though it might sound ridiculous to some people it's genuinely true like he the upside on someone with that kind of offensive ability is that high what's the likelihood of, of him reaching that well not that high, but still, that's within range. And not every player in the top 20 of this draft can can tout the same kind of offensive upside. 
So someone with that kind of offensive IQ, puck skill, the ability to shoot, uh, uh, put the puck in the net, to me, that is worth the risk that you take with his weak skating, which is something that could be worked on, but I don't think he's ever going to be a burner, to put it lightly. like The skating is genuinely uh, a, a pretty big negative, which is why he's not significantly higher. Uh, someone asked me once, why do you like Wood and not Crystal? Because Crystal's also a poor skater and uh, maybe ostensibly like the most offensively gifted player outside of the the top two that you might consider as Bedard and Michkov. And to that I say, uh, Matthew Wood's 6'4", nearly 200 pounds, and he still has a lot of uh, filling out to do. And also Matthew Wood is a better skater than Andrew Crystal. Yes, yeah. With Matthew Wood, it's a defin- deficiency. With Andrew Crystal, it's so bad it almost erases all all of what he brings offensively. So I like the upside on the pick. I think the Mantha comparison kind of stood out in my mind as well, Brad. Some people have noted that he has really good compete. Some people have noted that he sometimes disappears for a little bit. Red Wings fans have PTSD from Mantha where it's like this guy is ultra talented, but oh my God, just get like pick your feet up and move down the ice, please. Like that's something that plagued Mantha for his entire time with the Red Wings. But he can do it all in the offensive zone. And even if he settles into like a middle six uh, uh, winger who's not a burner but can contribute heavily on the power play, that fills a direct need for the Red Wings. And to me, that's the kind of offensive talent that you can't pass up. Whether you do that at nine, I'm not sure I'm there on him. But I'd be happy with a trade up from like 17 to try to secure him a bit later. Yeah, if you think he's going to be a middle six forward, I don't think you take him at nine. Well... You could, depending but, on how you feel about the draft, but in a strong draft like this, sure, no. Sure. You'd rather go with a guy with top line upside, which he, he he has. It's just the probability of it. That's why I said if you think he's yeah. a middle six forward, you don't do that at nine. He's also a winger, not a center. Yeah. Although he has played center where the year he dummied the BCHL, I'm pretty sure he was a center that year. Um, one issue with Matthew Wood for the Red Wings might be they have too many right wingers, which they might be the only team in the league that can claim that between... Lucas Raymond, Carter Mazur, Alex DeBrinkett, potentially. <laughs> where where do you fit these guys? Someone's gonna have to play their off wing, which is fine. That's some shooters way, prefer that. <laughs> yeah, it's and it's way easier for a winger to do that than a a defenseman. So, um, you know, the Red Wings went from this joke of a team forever that had like, what was it the one year Luke Lindenning was their only right shot forward, and uh, now all of a sudden they're flush with them. Yeah, how times change. It's Funny how that shifts so aggressively. I don't know. It, by the time Wood would make the NHL in any kind of meaningful way, the lineup will look different again. So I'm not too concerned about that, but it is a, a fair point to raise. Well, the thing is, the the two main guys that I would look at as roadblocks isn't the right word. Uh, for top six right wing spots are both young. It's Lucas Raymond and Carter Mazur in all likelihood. Yep. yep. Um, so... You know, that that could be a hell of a one, two, three punch uh, down the lineup. But yeah, someone might have to play their off wing. And to which I respond, who cares when that point gets brought up? So Brad said, if you want Matthew Wood, you'll likely have to take him at ninth overall, barring some kind of trade. Comfortability with that. If you're if you're making the pick, not pretending you're Steve Eisman, if you're making the pick, would you consider Matthew Wood as one of your potential options at nine? I mean, you have to consider it, obviously. But I think someone like, Ryan Leonard, just off the top of my head, would be a would be a more comfortable pick for me. Mm-hmm. I'd be okay with it. It's in the Red Wings are at that point. They how do I phrase this? I'm less concerned about whiffs now than I was in years past. Oh, not me. 
because the Red Wings cupboard was bare years ago. They needed any infusion of talent. Now they have lots of that. We know what the Red Wings are missing now, and that's top end talent. So to me, any pick at nine that isn't a ceiling pick is a waste of a pick. And obviously this is a great draft for that because a lot of the two-way guys still have really high ceilings in this draft. But if the Red Wings scouts feel Matthew Wood has like, you know, Tage Thompson potential and, and they're betting that's the more likely outcome, then I'm I'm perfectly okay with the pick. Guys at his size with his skill, they don't come along often. Like he's, it's not like he's Michael Rasmussen or Elmer Soderblom. The ceiling is considerably higher than both of them. So, you know, I'm okay with it. Again, it's not my preferred pick, but he's in range because again, on my rankings, he's, he's not close to 17. So if, if any NHL scouts listening right now, you know, I'm giving away too much. Maybe he will slip to 17. (laughs) I look at him and I, I agree. The upside is there where you can make the pick justifiable. You know, the longer we go on, the more fluid the, the kind of internal rankings I have in my head are Nate Danielson I'm really coming around on. And if I consider not, they're not even remotely similar profiles of players, but if I'm considering, you know, what can this guy be and what's his actual upside, Nate Danielson could be a sneaky good pick at ninth overall. And that would mean, you know, a lot of ideal picks go ahead of him and there's no trade up possible and, and et cetera, et cetera. But that's also very likely. It's very likely that Leonard's not there. It's very likely that other player that, you know, Dvorsky's not there. It's very likely that no one is going to let you trade up. And then Nate Danielson could be a guy where, yeah, you could potentially have a top two center and he's just not showing as, as such right now. You're banking on that future growth. We already did Danielson. He's a late birthday, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. Please don't talk this one into existence. Thanks. You're, you're not. I'm not on board with him at nine. I like, again, I like the player. But I I have no interest in another two hundred foot two way center with limited upside at nine. Like that's the the question of his upside is what I'm coming around on though. Oh yeah, if you believe in that, uh, absolutely justifiable because of how well rounded his game is. I'm not there on his upside yet. If we're talking pure upside, there's at least fifteen better options in this draft. Okay, let's go with so Matthew. What is it? The kind of player who maybe isn't that highly ranked but has the kind of upside where you can justify it. So he fits into that mold. Yep. What other players aren't necessarily ranked in the top seven, let's say, or eight, but have really high upside where you could see the pick, justify it, and it would be, you know, call it ballsy, but it could pan out. Okay, so I'm good. This guy was in this range and has been almost free-falling on a lot of boards lately and in a lot of reports. Uh, so much though that I've seen in a mock draft, the Red Wings get him at 17, but I went back and did a double take on Zach Benson. I'm even more sold than I was before. Like the, the guy has, I, I did a real, real deep dive on him because I was really big on him as he was one of the first profiles we did. So anybody yep. who listened to that remembers. And then ever since then, it's like, I put it out in the universe, big fan of this guy and everybody in the world went, we'll show you Brad, the (laughs) anti-scout. And, um, he just started free falling on a lot of boards and on a lot of mocks. So I went back and I'm like, okay, what did I miss? My, the conclusion I came away from is nothing. Uh, I knew he was five, nine, but I guess the hockey world, uh, just discovered that fact. Um, watching him and the more I watch him. 
I don't think he'll ever get this good, but I see so much Mitch Marner in him. Oh, 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 okay. Yeah, just just his. I thought you were going to say Braden Point. I was oh no 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 no, you. no no no! They are they are dramatically different players. Yes. No, but in you know how Marner has that sense, despite being undersized, to to make space for himself, find the space, and as that space closes, it doesn't matter because he's already two steps ahead and can make that play before the space closes. Yeah, yeah, that's Benson's best trait. It like I, I saw one one highlight reel video package, whatever you want to pull up, was just clips of his passing from along the boards. It was nuts. The second a defender who's a foot taller than him uh, got within a foot of him, that puck was already through the defender's legs on someone's stick in the slot for a goal or a grade A chance. So if we're talking upside, upside, Zach Benson might be that guy in this draft. Again, I understand the risk. He's a 5'9 center with not great speed. But... uh, God, I don't know if there's a better playmaker in the draft. Really? I don't know. He's, he's, if we're just talking that one aspect of his game, he's up there with Will Smith. He's this year's not, yeah, I'm not making a perfect one-to-one comparison, but undersized, really talented forward. That's this year's Savoy. Someone yeah. who we were big on last year, who Buffalo ended up grabbing after Detroit. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, it's, it's funny you bring up Savoy of all guys because Zach Benson's a year younger than Matt Savoy. Yeah. And, Zach Benson's been largely driving the bus on that team with Matt Savoy for the two years he's been on that team. So uh, if you like Matt Savoy, boy, let me tell you, this Benson kid might be even better. And going back to one thing you said, you're like, uh, you're not so concerned about whiffs for the Red Wings. I'm obviously concerned. I'm not as concerned as I used to be because the cupboard is so full. You need, you can risk a lower floor for a guy with a higher ceiling with this pick because they don't need another third line center. They don't need another second line winger. They don't need another second pair D. They need a star. And it is incredibly hard to find a star at number nine unless you take a swing because anybody with true top pair, top line potential that is available at nine is going to have flaws that you, that they either overcome or fix. So for Matthew Wood, he either has to fix his skating for Zach Benson. He has to overcome his size. Both of those things are are possible. Uh, I would argue for both of them likely not that Wood's going to fix his skating, but it'll get better and it won't hinder him in the NHL. I don't think, but yeah, like again, I'll use the Nate Danielson example as a good reference point. And, I, and I'll, I'll phrase it this way, which is is going to sound like I'm talking down on both these guys, but I'm actually talking both of them up because they're so similar. Why would we draft Nate Danielson? We already have Marco Casper. So it's... They w- they are going to fill the same role on the teams they play. It's funny because I, I agree with you in terms of, you know, the, the cupboard is full. You don't need more middling players. But then I look at the lineup and I'm I'm of two minds. One is... Yeah, same as you. Swing for the, the the moon. Try to get whatever superstar you can. But also, if it's not there, it's not there. So don't don't get too crazy with it. And if you're not going to be the win the draft lottery and get better with game breaking players, then you have to try to be the Seattle, the Carolina, etc. So grabbing an everyday, you know, second line player or, or an everyday top four defenseman, it's not sexy. It's not fun, but it'll get the job done. Right. So I have one counterpoint to that point. Any other year, what you're saying makes a thousand percent sense. And I'd agree with a hundred percent. 
I can count nine guys in this draft who have that potential. And that's what it boils down to. Yeah. Well, I think you're ultimately right is I think the upside is there. Yeah. yeah. At 17, this conversation becomes way more relevant. Yeah. If the high upside guys are gone and yeah, it's like, all right, Danielson's there or Tom Willander's there or the, these guys that you know are going to be really good because of how refined their game is, but like the ceiling might not be there, but all the high ceiling, like really high ceiling guys are gone. Yeah, of course you're going to take one of those guys. Why would I, why would I take a, you know, a pick a Lucas Travasevich when Willander's there, right? Like, yeah. okay, I'm, I'm taking the safer pick here, like, because their ceilings are not that far apart. Where are you, Evan, on uh, swing for the moon versus, you know, high floor? Well, I think there's basically anybody who's been ranked in the top 12 has subjectively, like, elite level ceilings. Um, yeah, The Red Wings don't have elite talent. Like, they don't have superstar level talent. So you've got to... What's the point in drafting someone who potentially does not have that? I It wouldn't make any sense to me. You can find middle six, bottom six guys everywhere. Um, you'd have to go for guys who could be superstars at the NHL level. You guys ready for uh, Danielson Honzik? I am so... <laughs> I know it's going to happen. Like, my my honest-to-God prediction is Willander at 9, and then, yeah, Honzik at 17. I, I can see it coming a mile away. I think, and, you're, I think you're genuinely closer to the truth than not there. Yeah, no. What I want to happen with two high-skill forwards is I, I would bet a substantial amount of money that is not going to be the draft strategy. And to this point, and obviously I'm not going to go back before Iserman got here, and I'm not saying he's mad, made bad picks. He's made good picks. But if Iserman's first pick in each draft goes defense, high skill winger, defense, 200-foot center, and then another defense or 200-foot center, that's a very flawed draft philosophy. Lucas Raymond's going to be on an island on this forward group soon. The only only way I am happy if the Red Wings settle for a Nate Danielson or a Willander. Again, before I get radioed, both players I really like. But if they take one of those guys at nine is if they are supremely confident they're going to take a One of the guys they want to take a swing on is going to be there at 17 and they just feel the value balances out that way. Or that pick goes into acquiring Dabrinkit. Potentially, yeah. So if you take like a Willander and you trade 17 for Dabrinkit or you take uh, Danielson and Matthew Wood slips to 17. Or you take Willander and Braden Yeager slips to 17. Okay. I can live with that. But if these picks turn out to be like Danielson and Simashev, I'm going to jump out that window. Like, I like both <laughs> those players, but that is a <laughs> but that is a very, very flawed draft strategy. We've heard um, when we had Reese Jessup on here, who I think is actually now working with Carolina. But yeah, yeah. at sure. the time, he was talking about Carolina's philosophy where they only swing for the fences on 90% of their picks. They just need one or two to hit in a draft and it fundamentally changes their organization, right? They can find, and Barry Trotz came and backed this up. You can easily find depth players in free agency and trade. Easily. It is not hard. Look what the Red Wings did last offseason. Second line pairing, uh, second pairing, Olimata. Top six winger, uh, middle six winger based on, on, on a good team, David Perron, Kubalik. You can find these guys. 
You know what you can't find? The guys who play above them in the lineup. So draft them. It ultimately ends ends up as not just who is reported to have the highest end ceiling, but who the team thinks has the highest ceiling. So these are important conversations to have, but don't think that just because a player is labeled as having a high floor, low ceiling, that's actually the case. See yeah. one most cider public opinion isn't always there. And the good news for you, Brad is um, all that money that you would bet on this being the case isn't available. You just bought a house. So yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm desperately poor. Right yeah. Now. You are very poor. So congratulations. You won't be losing any more money. Yeah. We'll see how the draft plays out. Doesn't mean I'm not jumping out that window if my prediction comes to fruition. No, and you know what? We have the uh, the deck furniture covered up right now, so I can't guarantee whether you'd land on the fire table or the cushion. So it's... You know. I'd be aiming for the fire table. <laughs> Again, no guarantees. <laughs> All right, uh, let's jump to another money topic here. Uh, not literally, but uh, what the people want to hear. Alex Debrinkit. We talked last episode about how Ottawa was reportedly leaning more towards... Trade the knot with Debrinket not thinking that he wanted to sign long-term in Ottawa. Everything can change. We'll see. Uh, but Elliot Friedman, shortly thereafter, uh, reported that he believe, uh, believes Debrinket's trade list includes Detroit, among other teams. But uh, he said Detroit is the team uh, that he is watching. Uh, you can count on the fact that Detroit's on that trade list. And it's not a surprise. Detroit's a local team. That's, uh, that is that is you know Alex Debrinket's hometown team. So aside from being from the area... Uh, believing that he would love to play there and it fitting with Detroit's needs. Like it just makes too much sense for that for Detroit to be on the trade list as well. So just by uh, logical reasoning here, you can figure it out. So two things come to mind that uh, uh, Friedman Merrick talked about. One is their reported position right now for Ottawa is that they would want to secure the trade before letting other teams talk to Debrinkit so as to not release too much leverage to the, to the player. And two... How much would Debrinket make on the Red Wings on a long-term extension? Because his qualifying offer would be $9 million, but probably no team is looking to sign him eight years times $9 million, and, and Larkin makes 8.7. So is that the internal ceiling? So thoughts on, first, the uh, Ottawa's trade strategy. Ottawa's trade strategy makes a ton of sense. You know, when you have an asset as valuable as Debrinket, yeah, you got to maximize the value. And if his player and agent go out and only negotiate with the team that he wants to go to, there's no leverage for the team because now your list of, we'll call it five suitors, is down to one. So to keep your options open, yeah, you don't give the player any power. You agree on a trade and then you allow the team, okay, we have a deal. We'll let you negotiate to him. If it comes to fruition, we'll uh, we'll hammer the smash button on this trade. And that that's pretty standard practice in the NHL, I feel. And you know, not that these sign and trades come to fruition all that often, although one literally just did. Um, I, I think it. I think it makes sense. And uh, yeah, I don't. I don't see Debrinket getting nine million over a long term deal. Um, God, every time you bring up Larkin's captain, I'm still so mad. It's not eight point seven one. <laughs> I mean, we're we were. Yeah, I I think he'll probably get something about an uh, around an eight by eight, and. If that's what he's asking, even if it's 8.5, my answer is still the Red Wings should do it. You can have, like, I, I feel like because Larkin's the only expensive player on the team right now, and we know Mo Sider is going to be probably above that number, and Lucas Raymond will be somewhere close, that, oh, we can't take on another high-dollar guy. You can't do it. It's just, guys, look at Tampa, Toronto, Colorado, they have four, five, six players north of $7 million. 
you have to. That's how you get good players. That's how you keep good players. And the Red Wings, as we've discussed at length, and I'm not going to go into it again, are severely lacking in top-end players. You can fill out the bottom of the lineup however the hell you want, but if you don't have a first line and a you know good top 4D, you're screwed. Now, if you have to overpay to get a yearly 30-goal score and Alex Dabrinkit, you do it. And, you know, every, there is a line. Like, I'm not giving them nine, nine and a half, ten million dollars. I'm not saying pay these guys whatever the hell they want. But I don't think the Red Wings are in a position to nickel and dime when opportunities like this come up. So Larkin's, Larkin's cap is 8.7. And so, like, 8.7 exactly. And so if he comes in around there, like you said, Brad, we're working in the margins here in terms of, ap- like, absolute value. Uh a 40 goal scorer, a guy who should be able to put up 40 goals will command a pretty penny. If they can get him in under that kind of internal cap to say like hometown discount, you're playing with friends, et cetera, et cetera, then that's great. But yeah, with the cap going up and just the intense need, I've always been of the mind of overpay for your stars and superstars. To bring it's not a superstar, but he would be Detroit's Hopefully Detroit's most potent, if not one of the most potent offensive weapons, bringing something that is entirely missing on in their lineup right now. The only question is, what's your belief in Dabrinka being able to do that consistently? He's a 40-goal scorer or 40-goal pace scorer, but he's also dipped into the 20s twice in the last four seasons, I believe. So do you think that kind of ebb and flow is a uh, just a product of his development over time? Do you think that's going to be helped at all by coming to Detroit? Because, you know, I, I think Detroit's offense is in a much better place than it was previous, to state the obvious. But they're not exactly going to nurture someone to 40 or 50 goals very easily. Debrink, it's ultra-talented, but I, I don't think it's a guarantee that he comes up here and puts up a 40 spot on the on his first go-around in 82 games in Hockey Town. So, I don't know. I, I can see some trepidation from people for not wanting to overpay, but the 8.5 mark... Eight to eight and a half mark to me seems more than reasonable. It just ultimately depends on what DeBrinket's contract demands would be, and if that's at all affected by coming to play for his hometown team. How many goals did DeBrinket have this year? Twenty-seven. Twenty-seven. Cool. That would have put him second on the Red Wings by three. Yeah, but it's still twenty-seven goals in an ultra-high score, like ultra-high scoring season for the league. Yeah, no, I I agree. And Ottawa wasn't a great team this past year either. Um, which is relevant because, you know, when you go from playing with Patrick Kane to the Ottawa Senators, can't expect that's going to get a whole lot better going to the Detroit Red Wings, I would argue worse. Uh, yeah, exactly. But he's had these ebbs and flows his whole career. So his do you whole pay, career. So do you pay him? Do I pay the guy whose floor is 27 goals? <laughs> yeah, that's fair. That's... That, yeah, that's absolutely you do. And I've I've heard like, oh yeah, he's undersized. How is that going to translate to the playoffs? I don't know if anybody's watched Alex to break it over these. Let me tell you, this guy doesn't thrive off this cycle. So I don't think <laughs> I don't think his production is going to matter when it comes to playoff hockey. He uh, he he has his way of scoring goals. And I'm playing devil's advocate here for the most part. The Detroit's not in the luxury of passing up on these kind of guys. So yeah. You know, I said it ultimately comes down to what DeBrinket wants contract-wise, but what it really ultimately comes down to is what's Ottawa going to charge trade-wise to trade intra-division. Because DeBrinket's not only willing to go to Detroit. Like, if Ottawa goes to him and says, hey, we have trades with Vegas, Florida, Dallas, I think Vegas and Florida were definitely on his trade list among other teams, but 
Uh, those three guys, Detroit came nowhere close. He's going to say, well, okay, uh, I'm going to talk to them. And one of them is going to offer him 8.8 or something. And that'll be enough. You know, it's not all or nothing for the Red Wings, or we at least don't know that that's the case. So what's Ottawa going to charge for not just a divisional foe, but someone who's in lockstep with them in terms of their, their progression through a rebuild. Now, I I know it's not apples to apples, especially with a potential extension involved in the trade, but it was only a year ago. Alex DeBrinkett cost pick seven and 39. That's your starting point. And you can go up or down from there. If there's no extension in the play in place, and it's just going to be on a rental to a team like Carolina, who's like, yeah, okay, we just want them for the year. Uh, that price goes down from there. But if it's a team that uh, has an extension, you're probably paying more than that. And intra-division, it's probably going to be even more than that. Um, what that looks like from Detroit, maybe it's pick 17, Boston's first and uh, second. Maybe it's pick 9, 17, and that's it. Maybe it's 9, a second round pick, and a prospect. Ottawa is also in the same position as Detroit too, which is what makes it interesting to me because maybe maybe they want a good player off the roster. Maybe Ottawa doesn't have much interest in going too far backwards losing to Brinkett. I think player off the roster, you're, you've hit the nail on the head. They'll want some kind of high-end asset. Yeah. They'll do their dance of asking for Raymond or whatever, and you say no, and then you, you progress through the negotiations. Yeah. But then they'll ask for... There's a lot of players who could fit the bill for Detroit. Yeah, it, Rasmussen, Berggren, yep. both those players I could see appealing to Ottawa. Um, and again, I don't know what the ultimate price ends up being, but it's it's not going to be little. Because obviously Detroit's, when I'm talking about Detroit here, understand that for the next however long until he's traded, this is with the understanding the extension's in place. Detroit has no interest in a rental. So yeah. keep that in mind when I'm talking about values. But yeah, you're going to pay out the ass for him. But here's the thing, because you were talking about Dallas, Florida, Vegas, uh, being rumored teams on his list as well. None of them have the assets to give up that Detroit does. None of them have the cap room to pay him what Detroit can. So if Detroit gets outbid here, someone is really, really stretching themselves thin and really, really or I should say way more gung-ho to get them because Detroit should be in the driver's seat of this process. They have everything that would be required to get this deal done, whereas the other teams that are likely on his list don't. If I'm betting all of Brad's money on anything, it's the fact that they are very in this process right now. Successful or not is a whole different question. Like Those are behind Eisenman's closed doors and... I don't know, Ottawa, I don't want to call Ottawa a leaky team, but I'm not kidding when I say this one. I think I have more active information coming out of Ottawa, the NHL team, than the Red Wings, the NHL team. Like, that's a real thing. Canadian markets are just such a different, it's insane. Like They don't have a boss right now, technically. So, uh, but everything's going to be clamped down if Eisman's involved, and that's intentional from Eisman. But... In terms of that trade, like it, it's as long as it's Pierre Dorian, we've seen both sides of the, of the spectrum in terms of what kind of return he garners too. Yeah, you never know. Um, and again, the player does have some leverage here, which could drive the price down. Because if he has five teams on his list and four of them go, yeah, we're not interested or we're just not coming anywhere near your price, then, you know, price goes down. Um, 
And I, I, when we were tweeting about this yesterday, I saw no less than three replies go, oh, why would you give up that much? Alex DeBrink is not going to make this a good team. What? Like, I understand DeBrinkett himself is not going to make this a good team, but when we talk about the Red Wings being two to three significant pieces away from being a good team. He's one of them. I, I mean, one out of three is a start. You like, did you think somewhere. all three are coming in one trade? <laughs> like, we're going to call up Winnipeg. Hellebuck, uh, Connor, Ehlers, done. One deal. Yeah. We, we give up our entire farm. No, like, yeah. Yeah. I, I, hey, if you don't like Alex DeBrinkett as a player or you think the price is too high and you want to argue that this shouldn't happen, totally fair. But to say don't acquire him because he doesn't make this team good, yeah, no shit. The Red Wings are still a ways away. You got to start somewhere. This is going to be a topic that's going to be discussed ad nauseum until he's traded, if he is. And so I already know we're repeating what we talked about last episode. But one thing I want to jump back to that I said last episode is I think you can, and I would inc- I would say it's almost Im- not imperative, but really, really important to get this done without doing pick nine if you're Detroit and you, you're successful in, in trading for him. I understand that they traded seven plus, what was it, 39, 37? 39, yeah. For, I think it's somewhere, something close to that. For, recently for, for Debrinkit, that's what Ottawa gave up. But he put up 60-something points this year. He put up 27 goals. Good numbers, but that's not, you don't repeat the same trade value and not in this draft. This draft is not equal to last. Yeah, pick seven was Kevin Korchinski. You're getting a much better player than that at nine. I loved Kevin Korchinski, the prospect. I think he's much closer to 17 than nine in this year's draft. Correct, yes. So, I don't know. Detroit has pick 17. They have next year's first. They have next year's first uh, of of the Boston Bruins. They have... Three second round picks. They have, you know, players in the Bear Grin, Soderblom, et cetera range. Like you have a lot to work with. I, I mean, it's kind of a shame that Ottawa doesn't really need left-handed defensemen because that would almost make this whole thing perfect. But in general, I would say I'm really gung-ho on this. I agree with you, Brad. Go all out to do it. Make it work as long as the number isn't too insane. You can get a little crazy with the cap number. Use your cap space for something, damn it. Not everyone's going to come in cheap, especially not your stars overpay a little bit in a trade because at some point you need to manufacture your own kind of production and get one of those three significant pieces, but not too overboard. And that's my only caution is don't go too overboard. It's still a team that you're hoping to be competing with in three years in the playoffs. Full on Donnybrook to, uh, to end game four of the cup final. You knew that was coming. The moment they didn't score, I'm like, yeah, everyone on Florida is punching everyone on Vegas. And as a neutral fan, it was entertaining as hell. Oh, I love it. It's, very few Stanley Cup finals are any kind of rivalry, but they get there pretty quickly. I was thinking as it was happening, I was like, oh, Shane Petrangelo's in the boat. Oh, no, he's out in the scrum. Look at that. Isn't that supposed to be a suspension? I don't know. Are the, are the rules even real? No, in the Cup final, the NHL is known to waive, you know, automatic suspensions. I'm fine. It's fine. Tomorrow's not the anniversary of anything. Don't worry about it. It's fine. <laughs> But Vegas uh, takes a 3-1 lead in the series. Look, I, I think Florida's suffered a little bit from some discombobulated play. I think they've suffered a little bit from uh, their goaltending, their very hot goaltending that they've had in the first three rounds not being there. But hand over fist, Vegas just looks like the better team this series. Oh, yeah, 100%. Um, Florida's only win so far came in overtime. Um Florida's playing basically the same game they've played all playoffs. They they haven't been out shooting teams. They for the most part haven't been out playing teams, but they've had timely goaltending and very timely and clutch scoring. 
and they play a very in-your-face aggressive style that throws the opponent uh, their timing off, and it's worked. And, you know, they're walking up to Vegas players, punching them in the face, and the Vegas players are staring them down, smiling, and going doing their thing. They're like, they just, Florida can't rattle Vegas, and Vegas is a better team. So that's a really bad combo for the Panthers to try and pull this off. If if everyone thought that Aiden Hill might be a good target before, just imagine how much his price goes up with each win. And if Vegas does this thing, like you can count him out as the 1B for Detroit behind Huso next year. I mean, if he does this thing, you got to assume Vegas is going to do everything in their power to keep him and either get rid of Leonard or Brassois, but Yeah, and Leonard, I think, has another lawsuit. I don't know. That guy's... Something with snakes. I don't want to know. It's it's so bizarre a story. It seems like uh, Chat GPT made it up. Like you you grab some random buzzwords and said you know ad lib this AI and then they wrote it anyways. We'll get a deep dive on on uh, Netflix one day. Oh yeah, absolutely. We can do all of our off season content just on Leonard's off off ice uh, snake troubles. The serpent, yeah. the serpent king. <laughs> we do need another. Uh, a Tiger King like redo for this summer. Although I think full swing this next season of full swing is going to be great when it comes out next oh, year. Yeah. yeah. Uh, anyhow, Vegas is up three one. What do you see happening with uh, Florida? Next game is on Tuesday night at eight p.m. Eastern in Vegas. The Golden Knights have a chance to close it out at home. Do you think Florida makes more of a series of it, or like they may? I think they make more of a series of it for the sixty minutes they're in Vegas, and then that'll be the end of the series. You think, it, you think it's done in five? Man, Vegas coming home, 3-1 lead, been the dominant team for most of the series. Time for a game off. If they don't, oh man, if they don't close it out here. The one thing that stops me from saying, yeah, but it's Florida, this is what they've been doing all playoffs, is Matthew Kachuk is seemingly hurt. That team is getting banged up in some pretty rough ways. Everyone's banged up by by the Stanley Cup final, but yeah, I'm... uh, I'm not sure that Florida has actually the manpower to to mount the comeback. I'd love for it to happen. I want seven games in any cup final that Detroit's not involved in, but yeah. It'd also be nice as their first cup win, if if it, they do in fact close the series out, for it to be at home. Mm-hmm. That's where, if, if you're going to win it for your first time, that's where it should be. Remember when Vegas got a team and Bill Foley had his first, like one of his first press conferences and he proclaimed they'd win? The, they'd make the playoffs within three years, and they'd win the Stanley Cup in six. Pretty this close. is year six. Hey, man. This is year six. Yeah, that's, a, <laughs> that's a big swinging call right there, and he, it's owning up so far. All right. We'll uh, update the cup final as it moves <laughs> oh, along. Oh, no. I just, I just had a, He's like, yeah, six years. What a call, Bill. And I just got the flashbacks of, oh, yeah, sure thing, Kenny. Ten years to rebuild. And here we are. <laughs> yeah. Oh, God. I it's, hate it here. It's depressing. It's depressing. Don't think about how long Vegas has been at this. It's not going to feel good for you. Have the Red Wings played a playoff game since the Vegas Knights have existed? Nope. All right. Uh, because that's depressing, I'm going to move us along. The already thin free agency pool just got thinner. In the second ever sign-in trade, Damon Severson is off the board as a potential right-shot uh, defenseman that Detroit could use to fill in the Hronix spot. He was traded for a third-round pick from New Jersey, uh, or, or from Columbus to New Jersey in an exchange. Columbus got Damon Severson, who was 
before that signed to an eight-year, $6.25 million per year contract, no trade clause for the first, this looks like four years, and a modified no trade for the last four years. So eight times 6.25 for the 28, soon to be 29-year-old Severson right shot defenseman. My initial reaction was, damn, because he would have been a great addition to Detroit's right side. I would have thought that he would have taken an overpay. Am I crazy for thinking I was not expecting a $50 million contract? You think that's too low or too high? Too high. Oh, yeah. You're No, you are correct. That's okay. a bad contract. I like Damon Severson as a player, but they essentially just paid a 29-year-old for eight years. Yeah. And... You know, you give up the third round pick to get the negotiating rights. That's perfectly fine. I, ha- I have no problem with that. Um, Red Wings did it with Huso, and that worked out all right so far. Um, if you have your guy, get your guy. But man, the cap hit's not as bad as I thought, but yeah, I just, I can't wrap my head around it. They're going to be paying this guy until he's 37. Yep. And that's okay. Like, I really like Severson as a player. I think depending on how you deploy him, he could be worth that money for more of the years than people think. But I don't know. It maybe in a maybe in a uh, we're looking at this from a Red Wings context, and that's just purely hypothetical. There's no indication that Detroit was ever in on anything like this. But maybe if they hadn't spent in free agency like they just did on Sherratt and Cop, especially Sherratt, I'm like I don't know that you can be dishing out eight years to a guy who's going to be 37 at the end of it. You can. You can, depending it, what your window is. Which um, we're talking about the Columbus Blue Jackets as they are right now who have seemingly done their absolute damnedest to ensure they are mediocre for a very prolonged period of time. You know, I, I saw a tweet going around of Columbus's top four and they're like, oh, now this, this is how you build an elite top four. And it was that elite top four featured Damon Severson and Ivan Provorov. And I said, did we die and go back in time three years? I can and see that top four being pretty good because that's where Ensky I can and, see it uh, being good. Yeah. Good is a good answer. Uh, I can see Provorov bouncing back a little bit. I expect David Juracek to be very good. Exactly. I expect Zach, a healthy Zach Wierenski, if he actually ever stays healthy, to be pretty good. I expect Damon Severson to be pretty good. I don't think that's a top 10, top four in the NHL, but especially not with Juracek as a rookie. And that's on the hopes that Provorov bounces back. That's on the hope Zach Wierenski finally stays healthy. And that's on the hope Damon Severson can still be good into his 30s. But you can't be surprised that Columbus is doing this because, one, they just signed Johnny Goudreau. They, you essentially yeah. had to have promised him a competitive team. And, two, I know Yarmo has a lot of influence and power, but Yarmo Kekalainen has been at this for a long time with the Columbus Blue, Jacket, Blue Jackets, and eventually you have to go. You have to make your own luck here. I, let's see what they do with their very, very good draft pick. Maybe they're thinking, we're going to get a guy who's going to be an NHLer sooner that, rather than later at third overall, which they should. Unless they go the Meechkov route, which I I don't think there's They're anything against that. They're definitely not. Now. But I don't think they will. What's their center depth like? Uh, non-existent. Okay. Uh, Kent Johnson, which is great. I love that for them. Uh, if they choose, if if Babcock chooses to play him at center, now th- I, Kent Johnson seems like a Babcock guy. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Johnny Goudreau, big Mike Babcock guy. I yeah? still laugh so hard. Patrick Line, he's going to get along with Babcock. Great. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, Mike Babcock seems like he would. Yeah, I can't wait for Boone Jenner to play 29 minutes a night while Johnny Goudreau and Patrick Line play 17. What's Boone Jenner catching strays for for here? Boone Jenner definitely is a Babcock type. Yeah, this now, and I think I said this last episode, I'm going to double down on it now that this 
new trade has happened. Columbus is going to get a lot better this year, just purely through health. They were one of the most injured teams in the NHL last year. So if Columbus jumps 10 points in the standings, I want everybody to remember this moment. It's not because of Severson, although he'll help. It's not because of Provorov. He might help. And it's not because of Babcock. He probably actively won't help. It's just the natural regression to the mean. If they go from, you know, whatever they finish at this year to 110 points, okay, I was wrong. And Yarmo knows way more than I do. Obviously, he does anyway. But I just, I want everybody to keep that in the back of their minds before they start saying Detroit should start going out and overpaying eight years for 29-year-olds. In other news uh, across the NHL, it's rumored that Erasmus Dahlin has an eight-year times $10 million contract, so an $80 million contract waiting for him as of July 1st uh, as an extension with the Buffalo Sabres, which, I mean, Erasmus Dahlin, anyone who was kind of sleeping on him was quickly silenced this past season, obviously is the future of that team and the Sabres. How does that inform on Detroit's own upcoming extension whenever it comes with Mo Sider? A little bit. I don't think it changes much. My prediction has always been around $9 million. This doesn't really feel off-brand for what the defensive market has been. Rasmus Dahlin is, what, 23 years old? Came into his own as a true elite defenseman in the NHL, and now he's getting paid like a true, or is reportedly getting paid like a true elite defenseman? Yeah. Why is anybody surprised by this? I don't think anybody's surprised by this, but um, yeah, no, this all tracks with everything we have all been saying for a while now. He has already played 355 games. Where is the time? Was this not his like fifth season? He's already finishing up a bridge deal, isn't he? No, and I know that, but it's just like, I remember. That's so crazy. Talking about his draft profile and praying beyond all hope that Detroit could get this guy as if it was yesterday. We're old. Shut Anyhow, up. Shut yeah. up, Brian. <laughs> $80 million contract. You're right. I don't think he's like that. That's not Cider's range, not Darlene. I love Cider. He is the future of Detroit's blue line, the future of the team, or at least one of the, the biggest pieces of the core, both physically and, you know, t- t- talking about uh, team impact. But he's not Rasmus Darlene. And that's okay. I don't know about nine. I, th- I still think he might come in under. It just. I hope he does. I just I, I wonder what they they think of Sider's offensive ceiling, and that's where the big bucks are for defensemen. Like, yeah, he was a fifty point for, uh, defenseman in his first season, forty two points this last season. But you know, maybe if he had a different pairing or didn't start out slow, ifs and buts, whatever, horseshoes, hand grenades, or something in there. But more or less, if you can count on him being an everyday fifty point defenseman who's going to be your your number one guy and defending really well, yeah, he's going to make a shit ton of money. I just don't know that nine million is going to be the number. The big asterisk here is how much does the increase in the cap and that projection move it up? So ultimately, Brad, I think you're right. That's that's closer to the number, but I don't think Darlene is going to be the direct comparable. But you bet your ass that Mo Sider and especially Claude Lemieux, which again, recurring reminder, if you didn't know. Mo Sider's agent is none other than Claude Lemieux. Yes, that Claude Lemieux. When they're in that room with Detroit's negotiating staff, whether that be Iserman or, or whoever else, they're going to use Darlene as a reference point if it is indeed 8 by 10 that Darlene signs. And that's just negotiation. Yep. Okay. Uh, other news across the NHL. Scott Lawton is a guy who's getting a lot of interest. Uh, some Why? people. Uh, hold on, hold on. 
disparage the good name of Scott Lund. I think he's a good player for Philly, and he's signed for three more years at, at like a three million dollars, I think. Cost controlled player who's very versatile up and down the lineup. Does well for Philly, really well like there. Looked well upon across the league, and I've had a few people reach out to say, "Does this make sense for Detroit?" Now it was reported that. Philly was turning down picks uh, as high as like late firsts. I don't know if that's real or that's just what they're selectively leaking to to drive up the price. I like Scott Lawton. I think any team on the league could have could make room for Scott Lawton, and that would be a, a positive impact on the lineup. Not at that price. I understand he's cost controlled for three years, but Detroit's not in the position to be moving a late first for which they don't have, but an equivalent asset for a guy who's not a top end of the lineup player. They don't have a dime a dozen. They don't have a dozen Scott Lawtons, but they have some. Yeah, they don't have a dozen Scott Lawtons. They might have half a dozen Scott Lawtons. Yeah. Pretty close to it. So, uh, yeah, a, a versatile middle six winger, Red Wings, pff, none of those. No. <sighs> Getting back to the draft talk, you can find guys like this anywhere. You're not paying a first round pick. You're not paying a second round pick to get these types of guys. You can find them everywhere. I'd pay a second round pick for them. Not if you're Detroit necessarily. Not right now, yeah. Yeah, if you're like a Tampa or uh, whatever, looking to, you know, overload before a run, sure, but by all means. But no, yeah, um, I, I know like skill set wise, they're not the same player, but like fundamentally, what's the difference between Scott Lawton and Michael Rasmussen or Pugh Suter or getting to Joe Valeno? Like <laughs> these, these guys are, again, I like Scott Lawton, the player. But like, yeah, what are, what, no, absolutely not. The only thing that worries me is he does strike me as a Steve Eiserman type. <laughs> and Scott Lawton, if Detroit traded him for him tomorrow, does not move the needle at all. I think he moves the needle a little bit. Like one point in the standings, if that. Take a point, Brad. You only have 80 of those last year. You'll take the point. For, for a second round pick? No, no. Not, it, again, it, it's not talking about the value of the player. It's just the position the team's in right now. So I'm uh, having a lot of fun this episode playing devil's advocate for you, but I'm worried that I'm going to uh, overdo it. So why don't I move us along to overtime here? Overtime is our segment where we take questions and comments from our Patreon supporters to say thank you for supporting the show. Patreon.com slash winged wheel podcast. If you want to join the so-called dub dub club, you get access to our uh, Patreon exclusive overtime episodes the bonus ones that record right after these uh, uh, main shows, which have been described as way more fun. And oh my God, you guys actually have a personality. So thank you for that. Uh, you also get access to the Winged Wheel Podcast Discord and you're automatically entered into all of our giveaways. For example, last season, we gave away all of Evan's golf clubs while he wasn't looking and replaced them with ones filled with uh, uh, chalk and lead variably. As well, we gave away two tickets to every Red Wings home game uh, this past season, the vast majority going to our Patreon supporters. Again, patreon.com slash winged wheel podcast if you want to go the extra mile to support the show. Glenn Brabham, our good friend from down under, said Frege said Lou hinted he has an excess of centers and may want to deal one out. Out of Barzal, Sezikas, Horvat, Nelson, and Pajot, who could we feasibly get and what would it take? The ones we could feasibly get are not ones I want. I'll leave it at that. The only player on that list who has any Interest to me as of right now would be Barzell. Uh, Yan says, with trade rumors and draft rankings coming up, I'd like to hear your guys' opinion on how many little guys are too much. We have one too many at this table, I'll tell you that. 
We have two too many at this table. <laughs> Damn it, Evan, you couldn't side with me one time. <laughs> You're closer to my height than his. Never I know, that's that. why I was hoping he would lean my way physically. Uh, the Red Wings are linked to Brinkett via trade and various smaller guys like Benson, Perot, and Sandine, Pelica, and Mox. With Raymond and Berggren already on board, there surely has to be a point where you say, okay, we have to move some of our smaller guys out if we're bringing you guys in. Where do you personally draw the line? How many smaller guys is too much? Also, Ryan's been really, really creative, exhausting all possible pronunciations of my name. And then he clarifies that it's Yen. So thank you, Yen. And he says, love the pod. I don't think there's a limit. Good players are good players. Um, Yeah, if they play a certain style, you can overload it a little too much. But, you know, Lucas Raymond and Jonathan Berggren are very different players. Um. You know, Zach Benson is a very different player from both of them. So it can work. You have to play a system that works. Could you have even three small guys if your team is coached by Mike Babcock? Absolutely not. Uh, Derek Lalonde in his system, yeah, smaller guys might have a bit of a tougher time, but it's not impossible. So, I mean, until you throw it all on the ice together, you have no idea. It also depends on how guys play. Like Raymond's not tiny. I know he projects as tiny, but I think he's still like a shade under six feet. Like he's what, 5'11", 5'10 and a half or something like that. And it just depends oh, on- Oh, 5'10's your... a shade under six feet now? Yeah. Maybe some might, might even say 5'9 and three quarters is a shade under six feet. Some, mm-hmm. I don't know who would say that, but I think they might be right. Uh, but in all honesty, it just depends on like how you leverage your strength and Raymond has to work on that. So that's why he is, I think, correctly perceived as a smaller player. I come back and forth on this. I think, yeah, you don't want to pass over talent. Like Detroit could have drafted to bring it. Every team in the NHL could have drafted to bring it. Chicago passed on them once. So and now teams are, are finding themselves in a position where they're trying to trade multiple picks for him. But at the same time, you get to playoffs and often push literally comes to shove and, and you get bullied a little bit. So I think there's a balance I think that the pendulum is swinging a little bit back towards find really athletic big guys who can move and do a lot of the skill things. Um, it just depends on the small guy you're bringing in. And if it's top of the line of talent, you're better off bringing in the talent and then working around the size in a different way, if that makes sense. Uh, Irish wristwatch switch swath says, if you were to able to draft any two players from the same program, who would you choose? Fantilli and Brindley are your choice of two NTDP players. Any other candidates even get consideration? Simashev and Boot, Edstrom and Stenberg, etc. Is there anyone on Connor Bedard's team <laughs> who's <laughs> elite? <laughs> yeah, Fantilli and Brindley is not a bad starting point there. Um, God, yeah, I know you mentioned it in the question, but my mind immediately went to the NTDP when you brought it up because I'm not thinking of any big combos in the CHL. This year, at least none that uh, when we're factoring in pick nine, I don't know. I, if, if I could, I'd maybe go pro and more, you know, something, something along those lines. I think Fantilli Brindley makes a lot of sense. Yeah, but you're not getting Fantilli at nine. (laughs) No, no. Brad Hot stuff coming through Crisco says, given Vegas's success, would you say Eisenman's biggest knock so far has been not backing up the Brinks truck to buy our way back into contention? I know it goes against traditional team building and may not lend to long-term success, but there's 31 other teams in the league that haven't been to the finals twice in the past six seasons and isn't the whole point to win. I think the starting point that Vegas was working with is what allowed them to do it. 
in the cap world, you can back up the Brinks truck if you're starting from zero, which is not even where Vegas started from. Vegas started in the green because they were able to steal players from other teams and other GMs, I don't know, took a love potion and just gave them way more than they should have. So yes, you can pay. It, it, that was pay to play, but Vegas was very uniquely situated to do so and, and you're hard pressed to try to do it. Does that make sense? Yeah, when Vegas started buying, they were a team fresh, like really started going crazy. They were fresh off the Stanley Cup final. Uh, Detroit should be very aggressive in that market, but not before they, you know, play a playoff round. I will say maybe Eiserman's biggest downfall so far or, or the biggest knock against him would just be the lack of leverage of the cap. Not that... These trade opportunities are a dime a dozen and very easy to find. Like he's done some, but there have been times where I'm like, mm, I would have loved to have gone for that guy, or I would have loved to have uh, uh, been the facilitator in this trade, or I would have loved to have taken that bad contract on. It's easier said than done because cap space is really, really valuable. And if you start to dole out like $5 million for a fourth round pick, well, then you're just a chump and everyone, no one's ever going to pay you a first for that amount of cap space, but no one pays you first to take on players unless it's Kyle Dubas in Toronto pointlessly. I don't know why I just went after Kyle Dubas there. He already lost that job. Michael Granlund. Yeah. Darren Helms, Dan Club returns, says using uh, Prashant's tool, I see Otto Stenberg has projected has been projected as high as 8th and as low as 53rd. Swedes have obviously been on the radar for the team during the Eisenman tenure. How would you feel about drafting Stenberg at 17? Could he be there for one of the second round picks? Now that I can actually answer the question. Yeah, we did we just pause? Be- <laughs> yes, we did. My golf influence has penetrated the podcast. <laughs> yeah, we held off for like eight years. Yeah. It's over now. Um, I think Stenberg's an okay pick at 17. I, obviously, the way the board shapes up, I, I feel like better forwards are going to fall, but perfectly justifiable there. I don't think it's crazy that he falls to one of the second round picks, but I also wouldn't call it likely. I agree. He could. He's He could be one of those names where it's like, yes, we talk about him all the time as a late first-round pick or mid-first-round pick. And, oh, my God, he's there on day two, and then Detroit doesn't take him with any of their three second-round picks. I Not that it was one-for-one one with the multiple picks, but I, I I still have not forgiven the Red Wings for the Logan Stankovin incident. That one, yeah, there's a few like that, and it's best not to hang on them. It's like, you know— uh, the Lindstrom versus Robertson pick, for example, like in hindsight, it's funny to look at the nobody they got the pick before a superstar. But I do not remember anybody sitting there banging the table for Jason Robertson at that point on Twitter, on this podcast, anywhere. Mm-hmm. They're like, ah, yeah, he was on some lists of, yeah, you, you probably should consider this guy here. He, for all I remember, he might have even been on ours at that point, but we weren't like sitting here doing backflips. I remember every damn pick of that second round going, not Stankovin, not Stankovin, let him fall, let him fall, let him fall. And then he went to the Detroit pick and they just kept on going. And yep. uh, that one, I mean, he hasn't even played a game in the NHL yet, so you never know, but that one never sat right with me. Uh, non-smoking podcast smoker says, who do you guys think will be the backup goalie next year and what kind of solution would you prefer? Will it be a trade or free agency or does it matter? Uh, also just signed up to Patreon. Long overdue. Greetings from Finland. Thank you so much for your support. Welcome to the Dub Dub Club. And yeah, who's going to be Detroit's backup goalie? You want to hear my ideal scenario? Yeah. Matt Murray. 
That was the first name I was thinking of. Take on the contract from Toronto. Yeah, I don't want to pay overpay for a backup goalie. I don't want to trade uh, an asset for a backup goalie. I would love to receive an asset for a backup goalie. And Matt Murray's been a starter before. He's not great anymore. He was okay in Toronto this year. But if you want Billy Huso playing 50 games, uh, Matt Murray should be able to carry 32, um, you know, health withstanding. Probably go out and get a, an above average number three guy, I would say. But yeah, like, I mean, the Red Wings are still at that point in their rebuild where they can do things like this and they're not hindering the performance of the team. So I, uh, I, I would be very on board with that. And uh, last one here from uh, AJ Voss says, question on the Mike Babcock Red Wings era. On one of the recent episodes, it was mentioned how it was pretty open even at the time that the Red Wings captains all had strained relationships with Babcock. I started really following the Red Wings closely around 2015, so I have no memories of that. So I was wondering if it was like a case of Nick and Hank being passive-aggressive impressors or if it was just something widely reported by insiders. Also, were there any notable incidents or stories that came out while he was still with Detroit? So you would never have caught it from Nick. It was only really after Nick retired, and even then, he barely says anything negative about anyone. With Zetterberg, it was the, the tension. I think was more visible at the time. Uh, Not that Hank said anything, but no, you can you read can between read. the lines. Yeah, there was a lot of reporting going on. That was also the era of the Red Wings, where access was more plentiful. Let's call it that. Uh, incidents that came out. I mean, the whole how much influence does a coach have over the GM and and roster decisions, etc. The focal point of that across the entire NHL was the back and forth between Babcock and Holland. And they weren't necessarily of different minds in terms of how they wanted to run a team, but the power struggle was to the point where there were actually comments in, in pressers. I can't remember if it was about Willette or Sproul, but one of the defensemen, if I'm remembering correctly. Was it Alexei Marchenko? He's like, we don't need to trade for someone. We got Alexei Marchenko or something like that. Could have been something like that, yeah. And they were just kind of in... It, Oh, not a public spat, but just like because it was this was for a depth player, but like a, a tug of war between Detroit's longstanding it was, legendary. It was Willette. It was Willette. I remember this now. It was Willette. And so that was it, that's just one incident, but that was a small one in the world of how Bab- Babcock was just a massive figure in the Red Wings world, and that didn't go well with everyone. That was sort of the height of the the pedestal era of Mike Babcock, like he had one with Team Canada, he won a Stanley Cup. Like yeah. everybody held him in such high regards. And once all this stuff sort of came out, there was a, people were sort of you know reassess their their evaluation of Mike Babcock. Yeah, I don't want to say like how the mighty fell. It was just like a little bit. You couldn't see the forest for the trees when yeah. you're right in the thick of it. Anyhow, uh, we're gonna wrap up there for this episode of the Winged Wheel Podcast. Uh, thank you all so much for tuning in. As we get closer to the draft, we'll share more of our plans, but um, we're going to uh, kind of ease our way into some mock drafts coming up, some actual draft rankings, things like that over the next couple of episodes. Thank you all so much for tuning in. Uh, If you're a patron, new or old, thank you so much. You're the reason the show happens. And to all of our listeners, uh, we can't thank you enough for listening. If you want to support in other ways other than Patreon, uh, hit subscribe and uh, put in a rating for the podcast wherever you tune in. Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google, wherever. It it does make a big difference for us. And uh, yeah, thank you all so very much. We'd like to thank our name-level supporters on Patreon. Arjun Shanker, Yves Bartels on behalf of the Sarah Grand Foundation, Akefer, Raymond's Missing Tooth, Icon, We Are Geelong, the greatest team of all, 
Glenn Brabham, Keenan O'Donohue, Yanni Burgers, Meals on Wheels, Matthew M. Rice. Oh, Keenan uh, is a new uncle. Congrats, Keenan. Uh, Cider for Norris, Croner's Cron- Left Knee, Admiral Matt S. of the Cheesebag Navy, Babe Landiscog, Brad Olatathai Crisco, Carl Brutina Nanaluski, Chris P., Citizen High Five, Connor Scovey, Cooking with Kosa, Coyote Season Tickets and Anywhere But Tempe, Dad, Please Come Home, It's Been Five Years, Denny's Gamer Girl, Derek Enstam, DJ Denton, Give Blood, Fight Probert, Hockey Town Love, Hockey Town Matt, Hassam Alkasem, Jay Gollum, Jacob Turner, Joel Miranda, Kalen Wood, Kevin James, King Tone, Marcus, Matt McKay, Michael Edland, R.A., Red 3, Ryan Hubbard, Scott Martin, Scrum Estimates Directly Correlates to Time Spent. <laughs> Archon. That's what I appreciate about you. Wallman's Elite Dancing D, General Andy Bohan of the Cheesebag Army, Sam Bankson, number one Red Guys fan, A.A. Ron, Adam Rose, Brad Hot Stuff coming through Crisco, uh, Brian Vasha, Brad Simmons, Captain Antonio Gracias of the United Federation of Cheesebags, Chuck Buff Chest, the Tarpless Goon, C.J. Wilkinson, Commander Ben Barron of the Cheesebags Space, Space Force, Connor Leighton, Corey Preda, Darren Fick, Dungeon Master of Puppets, Evans Lost Rangefinder, Frank Stanley, Ferk Bumming a Lemon, All My Homies Use Button a Lemon, Gene Sullivan, Grand Rapids Hockey Guy, Griffey Boy, Instructions Unclear, Cheesebag No Longer Fresh, James Laporte, Jeremiah Dobo, J.M. Rhapsody, John Evans, John Engels, Josh Yelton, Kevin McCracken, Quaz, Linda Hull, Maximilian, McBarlow, Melissa Erickson, Ophelia, Pavel Duck Soup, Steven, Tatarsos, The Hodag, The Hat123, your second favorite patron. Thank you all so very much, and we'll talk to you on Wednesday. Thanks for tuning in to the Winged Wheel Podcast. Be sure to check out wingedwheelpodcast.com, where you can subscribe to the show on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You'll also find links to other ways to support the show, such as Patreon, official podcast apparel, and more. And don't forget to follow the show on Twitter at Winged Wheel Pod. And of course, the hosts at Brad Crisco, at Ryan Hanna WWP, and at Hockey Town Evan.